Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. The advisor is just an, an investment advisor. And a lot of times they have unfortunate incentives around how they manage that. So I think that's the great thing about RIAs is that we're fiduciaries. We're going to take care of you and we're going to do it in the context of your whole financial life, not just what's in your portfolio. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. So welcome back on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm chatting with Catherine Payton, CFP. Uh, Catherine is an advisor at Abacus Wealth Partners. I don't remember exactly how we originally met, but I'm pretty sure I tried to hire her back in 2015 or 2016. And uh, I went back to look at some of our LinkedIn conversations from that period. Uh, and after she started working at Abacus, she tried to suggest I hire her son, <laughs> which I think is a great idea. Just I, 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 love, I love that story. Um, but I wanted her on the podcast for a couple of reasons. One, I know we all have thousands of social media contacts that we wouldn't really call friends. Um, I have thousands of people on LinkedIn that I'm connected with. I probably have two dozen that I actually have pretty regular, you know, conversations with. And Catherine has been one of them since the very beginning. She's been a great person, um, advice, introductions, you know, help in the industry. Uh, you know, it goes both ways. Uh, and it's just been a great conversation and a great relationship. And so I wanted to have her on because of that. And then the second reason is the reason or there's a good story behind how Catherine became an advisor it starts with a UBS broker, and I want to actually, I hope she'll share that a little bit with us. Um, so Catherine, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say thank you also for our wonderful ongoing conversation on LinkedIn. It's really been a delightful part yeah, of my it's life. It's been fun. Now, I know you moved around a bit. So where, where do you call home now and where are you connecting from? Um, the Abacus offices in Sebastopol, California. And that is about 30 minutes from my actual hometown now, which is Pengrove, California. And we are squarely in the lovely wine country, but also squarely in the path of the recent fires in Sonoma County. And so that has really framed a lot of our work with our clients in the last few years. I'm sure. Where did you grow up? North Carolina. Okay. So a little, little change. Very much a change. I, I met a young man in college who was from California and the rest is history. <laughs> as, as they say. <laughs> Without judging, you know, the quality of the lessons, what were some of the money lessons you got growing up? I mean, as a kid uh, growing up? Oh, that's a great question. Um, 
most profound money lesson that I got was um, money can just change everything for a family in an instant or lack thereof. My father lost his job when I was laid into my high school years, and it was a debilitating process for both my father and my mother. They really didn't know how to handle that because he had been a valued member of the community and a valued member of this company. And then the company was one of those companies that got bought out in the leveraged buyout um, activity of the eighties. And um, they just had the floor, uh, you know, the rug pulled out from under them. And so money became a very large issue in my life at a time when it hadn't really been up until then. And seeing my parents suffer with that and being ill-prepared for such a drastic change framed both for all of my siblings. I think we carry that to this day. And we have, as my sister and I like to say, we have built moats around our financial life to make sure that if that something like that happened to us, that we would be ready. How old were you when that happened? Old enough to notice that my parents were really upset and upset with each other. And it just created all kinds of dynamics that had never been there before. So as a, as a high school student, what, what was the experience of that? I mean, did your parents fight about money then or, or how did that, what, how did that manifest in your lives? Is my dad went through a really deep depression um, and my mom had to go to work full time for the first time since she had become a mother and she really didn't want to do that. And she really didn't like it. And so her, interactions with the rest of us became much more unpleasant than they had been in the past. Did that at all set up? Um, I'm just thinking about historical gender roles in families and, and money, right? Did that set up a difference for you in your, you know, when, when you started working, when you met that gentleman and, and moved out to California in the rest of his history, did that, did that change that at all? Well, it, it not so much that, although very naturally, based on both of our personalities, I've always handled the finances for my own family. And I, I guess part of it came from that experience and feeling, noticing that my father and mother had, particularly my dad, who had been kind of in control of everything, seemed all of a sudden not in control. And my mom had to step in. And so I think probably that was somewhat empowering in some ways. But you know, my dad was a really good guy and he had tried to get me interested in things like the stock market and all that sort of thing along the way. So I, I felt like I had, I had some grounding in, in that. I, I didn't just assume that it was a guy thing. And I know in client work, it's often the case where, you know, a husband and wife will come in or two partners will come in and one of them will take, you know, will will we'll take the lead. Um, and you probably experienced the same thing. And I think more today than 20 years ago when I started, it's now a lot more women taking the lead, which I think is an interesting change in our um, in the dynamic of relationships, but also just how money is handled. Do you, do you experience the same thing? Absolutely. I see that a lot. I see the women being more involved. I have several clients where the, the woman is the chief breadwinner in the family and the husband is the uh, chief childcare person. And I also have a lot of same-sex couples. And so I have many two-women couples. And so one of them, of course, naturally, usually takes the lead, but it's uh, yeah. it's not based on gender. I, I think we have a very similar client base, actually. Um, we could, we'd probably share those stories another time. <laughs> so in, in addition to your dad uh, losing his job and the, the effects that that, ha- that had on, on you and what you learned, were there any really early money lessons? Like, you know, we're talking five and six years old. You know, what was your experience of money as a child? I don't remember much from that period. I definitely remember when I started babysitting, which was at a very young age. My sister and I started babysitting for 
kids in our local neighborhood when I was probably 11 and she was nine, but we would go together and my mother was usually at home in case there really was any kind of issue. And we started doing it during the day. And then we worked up into being like professional babysitters. I had so much money in high school because of that. It was, it was great. But I remember, you know, we kept everything in a um, cigar box on my dresser. That's where all my money was. And uh, we, you know, we budgeted so that we could go on, after Girl Scout meetings, we would go to the local drugstore and spend our dollar on candy because you could buy like a bag full at that age <laughs> for a for a dollar. And you know, we would we wound up spending a lot of our money on Christmas presents. My sister and I would go downtown with all of our babysitting winnings and go crazy buying Christmas presents for everybody. But then we had to realize, you know, what that meant that we didn't have money for other things. So we learned those lessons pretty young. I love the fact that you spent your money on other people. Like I was all about candy and GI Joe and, you know, the, the little toys I could get for no money. So uh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, no, it, it was fun doing that though. We liked, it was shop shopping was fun. I grew up in Asheville, which is a really beautiful city in the mountains of North Carolina. And it was a really fun place to go downtown on the bus. And they had a, they had a great shopping area at that point downtown. It was, it was a great event in our year. Now, did you study finance? I mean, how, how, how did you get from growing up that way, babysitting, you know, getting married? How did you get to um, becoming an advisor out here? I'll tell you two stories. One's a fun story. One's a sort of sadder story. The fun story is I was a political science major in college and my mother, who was the ultimate practical person said, that's fine, but you have to learn how to type and take accounting. And so, <laughs> and so I did in the summer times, I took accounting at the local junior college and she was so right in the sense that as soon as I got out of college and started looking for jobs, my political science degree was worth not much but I got a job right out of school as a bookkeeper for a construction firm because I knew how to, you know, I knew how to do accounting. And that was the first place I ever used a computer for financial purposes. And I, I really kind of got very interested in all that and really stuck on the, the business world and particularly small businesses. And then in terms of becoming an advisor, two things. One, I'm I'm a teacher by nature and I have been a teacher for about 10 years in the middle of my career. And so to me, the advisor job was very a good combination of my teaching interest and my business and finance interest. So it, it's a, it actually is a great combination of those two things. And then the reason I really got invested or interested in investing was because I was managing, as I said, my husband was the, has, or I didn't see this, but my husband has been the primary breadwinner and I've always managed the, uh, the financial side of life, paid all the bills and when, once we started having a little surplus investing that and our investment advisor was a man at UBS who was uh, chosen by his law firm to manage their 401k and, you know, various other accounts that we had with them. And I noticed at one point along the way that many of the funds that he had us in were showing up on news feeds. This was in the 90s, so it was sort of a primitive version of a newsfeed, but Yahoo Finance had something like that, were showing up that they were getting law lawsuits against them because they were charging their clients too much. So I asked him about that. And basically the whole thing was that they were their fees were very high. They were out of out of the market high. And I asked my advisor about that, and he exploded and blew up 
and said he would never talk to me again and that he would only talk through my husband, even though my husband had told him that I was the one that he should talk to. And it was extremely unpleasant. He And it all turned out to be true because we wound up getting money in our account from those funds when they settled those lawsuits. So it was, it was, it was a thing he should have talked to me about instead of behaving like that. And that made me really decide that I was going to learn how to do this for myself because I was so displeased about that interaction. Were you back East when that happened or had you already moved to the Bay area? I came to the Bay area and then we moved back for a while and then we came back. I think we were, I believe we were living in Virginia at that point. And so what was the path from, okay, this guy's a shyster. Obviously I got to get, I got how'd you get from there to Abacus? Okay. So I, I just started really getting interested in finance and paying attention to investments and learned about John Vogel, Vogel and Vanguard investing and low fee investing and all those things. Luckily, because it's really hard to learn all that stuff. It's There's so much information out there and so much of it is bad. Fortunately, I got on the right path with that. And then in terms of coming to Abacus, I was still teaching once we had moved back to California. And I taught a class at the school with a man named Spencer Sherman, who is a founder of Abacus. And we were teaching the stock market game to my students. We were co-teaching that class together. His student, his son was a student at the school. And Spencer knew that I had all these interests and that I had this background. And he also knew that I was interested in getting out of teaching at that point. And when a position came open, he just invited me to apply. So the rest is history. I mean, I had looked for several years for a way to enter this profession because it's not easy. If you don't come from a conventional background, it is pretty hard to break down the doors and I just really lucked into having this wonderful entree. And now I'm Spencer's financial planner. It's, it's <laughs> interesting you say it's difficult to break down the doors. I think that's true, but our industry is vast, right? And I, and, um, I think that the UBS broker, that portion of the industry is pretty easy to get into. It's very difficult to stay because you have to meet sales quotas and things. But in terms of find, you right. know, getting in, becoming an advisor, an actual advisor, not a broker, at an RIA that's well-respected, that does financial planning. Um, I think back in the day, that was hard. I think today, it's actually much easier. We are begging for people. We have so many openings always. We're growing very fast. There's so much demand. But literally, I didn't even know that an R- what an IRA was until I came to work for Abacus. I did not. The way the industry is broken into brokerages and registered investment advisors and all kinds of other different financial therapists and financial counselors. There's so many ways into this market. And it, you know, I just didn't know the right path. I had talked to a couple of companies. I really was interested in helping companies manage 401ks because I'd had such colored experiences with those accounts over the years. And I really wanted to, that's sort of my mission in life is to make those accounts work for employees And so I was trying to go in through that direction. I was having a hard time finding something that would offer me full time, but with also geographic flexibility and things like that. So you landed in a, you landed at a great firm. I mean, it's, it's really neat how you, how it's kind of lucky, but also, you know, it's just where you were at the time, right? It's lucky, but I feel like I put it out there to the universe. You know, I really was trying. And so it just, it all fell into place when Spencer came into that classroom. Yeah. And the funny thing was, I didn't even want to teach that class with him because usually in the past, when I'd had parents want to co-teach an investment class or an economics class, 
they tended to have some kind of conspiracy theory kinds of ideas about those things that they would try to, you know, impart on students. And so I was a little wary about that. But of course, working with Spencer was amazing. And we had such a wonderful time together yeah. doing that. And that, that's, that's the luck piece is, is the, the first contact with another teacher was that was, was Spencer. So that's great. So, yeah. you know, now that you've been a financial advisor for, for a number of years, you probably noted that we're, we are expected to do a lot of different things, you know, in your experience, when clients uh, are coming in, do they ever expect you to do things that aren't possible? Like, are they are they asking you to do things that you can't do? Um, and then on the flip side of that is, what are the things that is really within the circle of competence of an advisor? Well, I can only comment on my specific firm and my specific experience, but um, I don't often have clients ask me to do something that's impossible. I do have often have clients who are thinking about becoming abacus clients, but aren't a good fit because abacus has a very simple and disciplined investment philosophy. And we don't invite, we don't invest in individual stocks ever. We manage those investments for clients who bring them to us to make sure we don't create taxable gains when we sell them, but that's not part of our investment portfolio. And that is not a good fit for a lot of people. So that is more of a challenge in my world is making sure Abacus has a very specific investment philosophy and outlook, and it works for a lot of people really well, but it doesn't work for everybody. Right. I guess uh, one of the things and this, maybe, maybe this will stimulate a little bit more. One of the things I, I hear often is Hey, Jonathan, I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing two or three different firms. Can you tell me about your performance? And I, I think that many times people use that as a decision point, even if we try to coach them that, hey, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future re results. Do, but do you get that question or do you not even get that question? Oh, I always get that question or almost always. We're pretty open about our performance and we're pretty open about our philosophy and how that has been both good and bad in recent uh, years. For instance, we uh, we often, you know, some of our funds are, are tilted towards small and value stocks, and those have been out of favor in the recent past. But over the long term, they've had a huge impact on performance. So we stick to those, we stick to our knitting. And so, um, you either like that or you don't as a client. You you and and I think we're very open about that, which is a good thing. We're very transparent about that. Yeah, and I, I think that's the the question because so much of the media talks about that, and because you know if you're on social media for 45 seconds, they talk about Bitcoin going up 45 thousand percent, and that that gets stuck in people's minds. And and oh, the percentage is the thing that becomes really important, and so that causes them to ask the question when they come and interview advisors. And I've never thought that that's where the advisor's value lies. But rather than me talk about it, where do you think, what is the incredible value that an advisor can provide? There's so many things that we provide our clients, I think. One is that we provide stability and reassurance and, and education for our clients when they want to know things. You know, we, I think we're very good at explaining things to our clients and making sure they understand why we do the things we do. Um, we obviously we're helping them with as a RIA, we do a lot of planning besides just investing. I mean, investing is only one small part of everybody's financial life or it should be. 
And we're talking about all of those things. We're talking about college and we're talking about what do you want to leave your grandchildren? We're talking about which nonprofit do you want to add to your as a beneficiary to your IRA. We're talking about whether you're around here, we're talking about is your property and casualty insurance good enough to cover you if your house burns down? We're talking about all those kinds of things. And I think that is what provides value, immeasurable value, I think, to our clients. It's not just about the investments. Whereas with a lot of firms that they might be looking at, that's all they do. The advisor is just an, an investment advisor. And a lot of times they have unfortunate incentives around how they manage that. So I think that's the great thing about RIAs is that we're fiduciaries, we're going to take care of you, and we're going to do it in the context of your whole financial life, not just what's in your portfolio. How much time do you spend? I mean, it, it's it's surprising to me, you know, people uh, looking for an advisor may have some basic understanding of their goals, but how much time do you spend helping people develop like life vision? You know, it's, it's almost as if, yeah, I'd like this and this and this, but I've never really thought about all the possibilities. Do you like walk them through? Well, what would you like to have happen in your life? And I, and I asked because I, I had a, um, a previous guest uh, who is basically life planning and he, he talks about freedom and he talks about, you know, what is the life you dream of? And it's interesting that not, I mean, most people don't ever really sit back and think about the possibilities. Well, we spend a lot of time talking about all those things, of course. I mean, the idea of building a financial plan for a client is all about their goals. Now, I probably don't talk as much about some of their non-financial goals as your former guest. We're talking about things like, what do you want your feel life, your life to feel like in retirement? Do you, you know, what's going to give you ease and openness in your life when you get to that point? And how are we going to get you there? Um, we're talking about, do you want to have a second home? Do you want to, you know, make sure you have lots of money to travel for the first 10 years after you retire? So we're talking about those kinds of goals a lot and, and planning around them. You know, we do lots of different scenarios for our clients. What happens if you buy this house as opposed to this house? You know, how much do you, what if you get a mortgage or what if you don't get a mortgage? You know, what all the ramifications of all those things we talk about all the time. Now, if I, I, this, this is kind of an off the wall and that's not really off the, off the wall question, but maybe uh, after, you know, half a dozen people have asked you questions and you realize, you know, they're not asking the right questions. Uh, what are the three most important questions that people should ask when they're coming in and talking to an advisor or when they're interviewing three or four advisors? The most important question is, is really, it's not so much a question. It's a, it's a personality fit. You want to make sure that you feel comfortable talking to that person, that they listen to you and that they hear what you're saying and they don't steer you in a specific direction. So that's the most important thing to me, I think is, is that kind of personality fit. And then in terms of questions, what, what does the engagement look like? What's the roadmap of the first year that you're working with them? What are you going to cover? And when are you going to cover those things? And how much work is going to be involved on both sides? And if that's, see if that's what you want. You listen to them and what they say and understand, is that the fit? Is that what you're looking for? Fees also are important, of course. Uh, they, you should know if they're a fiduciary or not. I think that's a really important question. And by a fiduciary, that means somebody that has to work in your best interest, not just in a way that is suitable for you, but that's actually in your best interest. And I think that's a really important question to ask. Other than that, who's going to be working on my account? How many people? 
who will I be talking to? Who's going to be emailing me? How many times am I going to meet? Are we going to meet by Zoom or am I going to come to your office? Or are you going to come meet me in a coffee shop or, you know, just sort of the, the logistics of the relationship and then understanding, you know, their, their philosophy overall in terms of how they see clients and what they're working with their clients to do. All, all great questions for sure. Now let's pretend for a second that someone's not looking for an advisor, doesn't want an advisor. Um, you know, that's what, you know, m- mindful money comes out of um, this thing I was trying to build with my brother a while ago. And we had always wanted to help people out that don't have access to advice or don't have access to good advice. So what are some of those behaviors that they sh- people should engage in? What are the things that really move the needle that maybe no one talks about so much? And then what are some of the things that, that don't work that people talk about all the time? Like, I think there's a lot, there's a popular narrative around how people manage money and there's things that we know work in the, in the industry, right? Um, and there's things that we know don't work, but there's a lot of attention paid to some of those things. So could you differentiate some of that? Well, what doesn't work is listening to CNBC and then going and buying everything that they talk about that day and selling when they tell you to sell and churning accounts all the time. I actually tried that when I was a youngster and I tried doing what I thought were good buys and I read financial magazines and, and it was a disaster, So that doesn't work. That's for sure. What works is automating your savings so that you don't have to think about it. Doing things like if you're joining life with a partner from the beginning of the time you're together, try to live on one salary or at least one and a half or something like that so that you are always not getting your lifestyle ahead of your finances which is really hard to do in the Bay area where we live. And those are probably the two most important things. If you, it's sort of nitty gritty financial life is living below your means and automating everything. I I love it. That's and it's, and making it just that simple. And if, and I, I often tell people, Hey, if you just save more and invest in some kind of automatic program, you can get to the point where you'll need really deep financial advice. Like that's where it begins. That's the iron wire. Do that first. You won't need me until you get this done. Like that's, that is everything. What are some of the things that people try to do? And this is the popular media. You, you mentioned CNBC, turn off CNBC. Rule number one, turn off CNBC and anything like that, right? But what are the things that they talk about that, that don't work? Trying to think you're smarter than the market. I guess is the answer. What I believe after having done this for so many years is that with few exceptions, there was a guy named Peter Lynch who definitely did this. This did not apply to, but with few exceptions, the rest of us get the market return or less over time, no matter what you do, no matter how you invest over the long term, you're going to get basically the same return that the market provides. And so the only way to get ahead of that is to keep your fees low. So that's my philosophy in a, in a nutshell as far as investing goes. So that's what I talk to talk, especially to my younger clients. It's all about consistent saving from the, as soon as they can possibly get started with it. Even if it's $20 a month, you start with that, you automate it. And then the next month you make it 25 and then the next month you make it 30. And you just have this consistent disciplined approach is what is, is going to work. Yeah. I, I love it. That's uh, 
I think we basically say the same things to people that aren't aren't going to be clients. You know, if we're if we're in a public sphere and people ask questions, hey, what should I do? It's save more, automate, save more, automate, totally. keep it cheap, keep it cheap, keep it cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a an old boss that contacted me recently and he was telling me about all these financial things that, you know, investments he was making. And, and he asked me, and so what do you do? And I say, I just put everything, all of my money in index funds and keep my costs low. And that's what worked for me. Cause I started doing that after years of trying to do all the other things. I finally started doing that about 20 years ago, and that has made all the difference. This this is kind of, maybe it's a bit of a, a, a bit of an aside, um, but are there any resources that you read on a regular basis that reinforce this? Or because I know that I have the same belief you have, um, but I read a lot of stuff, and so I do get occasionally attracted to. And I got to tell you, I'm not investing in it, but I'm attracted to it. You know, I, I feel the pull of considering, uh, or considering uh, crypto or Bitcoin, or I feel the pull. It seems exciting. People are making lots of money. It seems like I should be engaged in that. And if I didn't have a regular process of reading the literature, reading the statistics, reading the, the history of markets, I could totally get pulled into doing those kinds of things and, and get excited by those. So is there anything you read, a resource that keeps you calm and keeps you based in reality, or is it you're just past it? Part of it's I, I'm, I'm just old and, and you know, cocky. <laughs> I, I think I've got this figured out by now. But I, I love Kiplinger Magazine. I think that they provide, of, of all the sort of mainstream things that people might might see, I, I really like that one. And, and also the AARP Magazine, if you're over, over 50. Really good advice in there. There's a man named Barry Ritholtz who runs a very interesting blog, and he has a lot of employees who also blog, and I love all of their blogs. So I would say, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of his right now, but if you just Google Barry Ritholtz and his family of blogs, I think is probably, if you really want to get involved in investing and get way down into the details and really understand this, I think they are providing outstanding advice. Totally. All their podcasts, all their blogs. Yeah. It's great stuff. Yep. It's a family of resources that in one place, you just have so much at your fingertips. I've tuned in, listened and read their stuff for years and years and years. My only concern in, in recommending them is they do get into the nitty gritty of stock selection and they do get, they do get into the nitty gritty of a lot of the analytical stuff that I don't know you know, I don't make a change in my portfolio design because I expect inflation. I don't make a change because, right? So I worry that that leads people a little bit towards, and it's, you almost have to do it to be in the media because the media, you know, draws eyes based on current what's happening and all that kind of stuff. So I understand the motivation. It's great to develop understanding, but it should, I don't think it should sort of determine your portfolio design, right? That's the that's true. You're right. They probably get a little little far out there sometimes. But I think in general, for most of their clients, it sounds to me that they're mostly investing in mutual funds and running the same kind of portfolio that we do at Abacus. But I yes. And I, I'm sure for some of their large clients, they are doing more adventurous things. I have the, the thought that there's, there's, there's a level and a difference for, for everybody of, of how much you should keep in a solid disciplined portfolio. And once you get to that level, if you want to take 5% of your portfolio and put it in crypto or put it in, you know, 
biotech stocks or whatever you think, as long as it's only 5%, you should do that because it's fun and it's interesting and you'll learn some things. So why not? So how do you invest that 5% for you? For me, I try to buy low when the market drops. I, I, I do myself buy individual stocks like right now when, when the markets are down. I, but I look for blue chip stocks that pay high dividends. You know, I'm still being pretty conservative about everything. My son very is very boring, <laughs> very boring. My son is really trying to get me to invest in Bitcoin. So I have started reading a lot more about crypto. I write an internal um, planning uh, newsletter for our firm about you know planning issues that come up along the way, and so we did an we did a uh, newsletter in November about crypto, and we really dug into it a little bit and found out stuff because we don't do it. You know, we're not going to tell our clients to invest in crypto. We're not going to buy that on their behalf. I, I mean, maybe in the future, but certainly not for the next five years. But that was the most well-read newsletter that we ever, you know, every advisor in the firm downloaded and read that one. So, you know, it's an interesting topic and people want to know about it. It's, it's fun to read about. I was going to say, and like everything, it's all vocabulary. It's so hard to read when you first start because the words seem so arcane, which is the same thing with investing, right? I mean, it's, you have to get over that vocabulary problem. I think back to every bubble. I, anytime you have something that, and I'm not calling it a bubble, I have no idea. Like I'm not making a judgment of it. But anytime you have something that does that moves so quickly and gets so much attention so fast, you you can't not talk about it. You have to talk about it as advisors because people are hearing about it and they want to hear about it. Right? It's something we have to cover. Well, that is it's absolutely right. Is you we may not invest in it, but we need to. We darn well need to know about it because our clients are going to have some. And they're going to be asking about it. And we need to be able to answer them responsibly. So uh, we're getting pretty close here to uh, what we'll call the, the culmination of, of, the, of the interview. But uh, I have a couple closing questions uh, that are more maybe personal. So first, what was the last thing you changed your mind about? Crypto. <laughs> and I wouldn't say I've dramatically changed my mind, but it, I, was, I thought it was just a fad. And I have come to, because I've read a lot more about it, I have come to see that it's the, actually the cryptocurrency is not the real thing that I think is that interesting. It's now the blockchain and how financial transactions are going to change because of this. So things will change because of this movement, I think. And so that's probably the, the last thing that I've changed. I, I think you and every advisor on the planet, like it's, we've all, we all came out originally saying, this is stupid. And then we're like, wait a second, let's look under the hood. Wait a second. Yep. There's something here that might be. Yep. Might Stay be tuned. We have yep. to research and figure it out. So is there anything that people don't know about you that you really wish they would know? Or is there something that you've told them a bunch of times and, and they just don't seem to remember? Like, what is it about you that you really want people to know? I think, and, and they probably will figure this out, is, is that I'm in this job for a purpose, there's, there's a reason that I'm here. It's not just because I'm interested in the topic or anything like that. It's because I feel like it's really hard to do this well. There are so many ways to get lost and to get tracked in the wrong direction. And there's, it's so hard to figure out what the right thing to do is. And, and I have seen that impact with my parents. I've seen that impact with friends and I've seen that impact with clients who come to me after years of doing 
what turned out to not to be very favorable things for them and trying to kind of help them recoup from that. So I'm in this, I really do have a personal mission about this, about doing this job. And it's important to me to go to work every day thinking that I'm going to do something that's going to make something better for somebody. And I'm also going to do it in a way that I don't have feelings that it's compromising my ethics. I have not always felt that in jobs that I've had in the past. And after I became a teacher, I decided never again would I do a job where I didn't have those two feelings every day because it just, it's so great to go to work knowing those two things. And so I think that's important to me. And I think that's something that people should know about. Yeah. And I, I would never have somebody on the podcast that I thought otherwise of. Like, I, I think that that is, I didn't put it in those words in the introduction, but that's how I feel about our interactions. You have always been like above board. How do I help? And you've helped me. Um, and I'm, you know, technically I'm a competitor, but, but I, I just, I love that. I love the stance. I just want to th- say thank you for coming on. So finally, can you tell people how to connect with you? And we'll put it, we'll put this in the show notes as well, but let's, uh, let's give them it verbally. How do they, how do they connect with you? Best ways by email, Catherine at abacuswealth.com. Okay. Catherine with a K. Catherine with a K. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, uh, the spelling will be accurate in the print. Um, okay. So thank you very much for coming on. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation as I always have. Uh, and I appreciate you. Thanks. I enjoy it too. This was really fun. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindfulmoney. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.